All right, welcome. So you see the words positive psychology and what comes to mind? What, what do you think you know about positive psychology? Positive psychology. When I say the words positive psychology, what comes to mind? What do, you th what do you think you know? Have you read any books about it? Have you Googled it? No, nothing. So for months you have known this was going to be the topic and you got... <laughs> That's what you're telling me, right? Don't care. I'm just going to get my quote. I'm sitting here. Well, we've got about half an hour. So let me tell you, um, let me cram a 16-week course into about the remainder of 30 minutes. If I say positive psychology, it kind of leaves the impression that there's other kinds of psychology, right? Like there's bad psychology or sad psychology. Well, so a couple of people in the field that you might want to know or Google or take notes. Martin Seligman, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N-N is considered the father of positive psychology. And he says, you know, this really isn't something new. It's not as if we are replacing what we knew. He considers as a bit of a course correction. Psychology has done really well. When someone comes into Terry's office or um, other mental health professionals' office, we can help people who are depressed be less depressed. We can help people who are anxious be less anxious. But Seligman says it's a fundamental difference to bring someone who is depressed to less depressed to now being now adding wellness or mental wellness or um, dare I say good vibes. There's there's a fundamental difference. Those two things are not the same. And so we're not, we're not adding, or we're not saying this is what you need to be doing. We're saying both and. Yes, you need the good clinical skills to help someone understand anxiety and depression and all the things that we spend a lot of time on. But here's this and, here's this other aspect of mental health that we get to know. Here's why it's important. Barbara Friedrichson, F-E-R-E-D-R-I-C-K-S-O-N, University of Chapel Hill has this wonderful book or I think an article, and the title is, What Good Are Good Emotions? Caught my eye. She says that negative emotions function for us on an evolutionary manner. Let me unpack that a bit. The people who said, <clears throat> hello, pretty kitty, to a 500-pound lion didn't live to pass their genes along, right? Wait, right? <laughs> Another cup of coffee. Okay. Um, so negative emotions function for us. They help us. They're important. We need them. We need them to survive. A couple years ago, a book came out with something about paying attention to fear. It's a good thing. It's telling you, wait a minute, don't go there. Something's not right. And so she thought, well, if negative emotions work for us, what good are good emotions? Actually, it turns out they're good for a lot of things. When I think something negative, when I'm thinking, when I'm feeling it, when it sits in my body, my peripheral field of vision narrows. Cool science fact that you didn't know, right? My peripheral field of vision narrows. I don't need to see the gorgeous yellow skirt. I just need to concentrate on the threat. 
when I'm thinking and feeling and experiencing gratitude or positive emotions. The reverse is true. My peripheral field widens. It's not that I create that. It's that I can become aware of that and use that as a skill. So in therapy, in good mental health, we're doing both and. We're paying attention to the anxiety, we're paying attention to the depression, and we are creating opportunities to, for people to have that sense of gratitude so that they can have this wider peripheral field of vision, see the coping skills that are already there, and use them. Okay? Let me give you some data. So about 1980s, 90s, thereabouts, you had three very, very different group of people kind of um, create this whole new field. You have Martin Seligman, who already talked about University of Penn. And you can, if you are enticed and you want to learn more, you can actually do a master's degree in positive psychology or a certificate. Anyway, University of Penn, positive psychology. West Point a couple of years ago, actually told Martin Seligman, we want you and your professors to come to West Point to teach, I know midshipmen, what is it that are at the wed? Cadets. cadets. <laughs> yeah, there's a midshipman in the room. So cadets, to teach cadets um, something around resiliency. Resiliency is a huge, huge term that you need to get to know having resiliency. The idea was, my hypothesis was, if we teach cadets how to be resilient, where might this lead? People who experience traumatic events, particularly moral injuries. The hope, the hypothesis is, if we teach good resiliency skills, that's going to make a difference in soldiers dealing with PTSD. So ongoing, it's currently. The image that I like, though, is drill sergeants on the University of Penn campus sitting in classes. Now you have hundreds of drill sergeants teaching every single army recruit around resiliency. Your government is spending millions of dollars in this research. So it would behoove you as a civilian to say, hey, I can take part of that. I can Google resiliency. I can figure out how to do this. This would be a good use of my time. So. University of Penn, Martin Seligman, huge study. There's a website, no, no stuff. Mm -hmm. Do we have markers? Uh, we okay. Have a yes. Authentic happiness, I think the website is authentichappiness.ses dot upenn.edu, something like that. But if you Google Authentic Happiness, um, that site will come up. And it's actually a portal for all of the assessments. And there's an assessment, particularly around resiliency, that if you're interested, I suggest you take. Grit, and I'll talk about this in a minute. Um, early studies, but what they're looking at is grit is predictive of suicide um, ideation. So if you are resilient, what they're looking at is then you have a lot of good things to counterbalance to work with suicide ideation. So Martin Seligman, his main research portal is Authentic Happiness, all of the stuff around University of Penn, okay? Then we have, and I, I'm doing geography, 
and I'm bad in geography, so this could be all over the map. Then we have, and I've already talked about Barbara uh, Friedrichson, University of Chapel Hill. Is Penn is over here. Where's Chapel Hill? Over here? Yeah. Out the room? <laughs> Somewhere over here. She's over here, and she's doing, she has this thing called Emotion Lab. She's the one who is our premier researcher around emotions. You want to think and read and, and talk about emotions, she's your gal. You also have someone, so in Case Western Reserve, Cleveland, back over this way. So Dr. David Cooperwriter has worked taking positive psychology um, as you would do it individual, now placing it on systems. So IBM has come to David Cooperwriter and say, we want you to help us figure out how to do systems change. UN retired General Secretary Kofi Annan, I'm not above name dropping, <laughs> went to David Cooperwriter and said, we want you to come help us at the United Nations figure out how to do a new United Nations global initiative. So individual psychology, systems-wide thinking has exploded in the last 20 years around positive psychology, okay? Let me do a little bit of research on why. Have you guys had a marriage class yet? Is someone doing? Uh, we, you've, heard of, you've heard of Gottman? Yes, shake your heads, yes. Anytime you hear of Gottman, you probably are seeing this number. Anybody? Does that look familiar? What do you guys talk about? <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not Gottman. All right. So for years, Gottman has said you need five to one, and that means five positive things to one. I'm seeing you. Do you know what that means? Yes. Yes. So. Were my sweet husband, hypothetically, to say something ugly, which he never does, right? He would actually need to do five positive things for me to have an understanding. Ah, uh, it, it feels good. This is now working towards good. This is healthy. This is why this is important. We think one-on-one. -on -one. Right? He thinks, hey, you know, I came home and she was in the kitchen and instead of going directly to her to say, hi, how was your day, and kissing her, I just go upstairs and start on the computer. No biggie, right? That would be a negative. And Gottman says you actually get to do five of those. Here's the science behind why. What happens when I, as that person, feel stress? Any medical background people? Physicians, PAs, nurses? Okay. Um, <laughs> from the stuff that you've heard or read, what happens when you get stressed? What's going on with your body? Yes. And what else? So adrenaline, hormones. Yes, fight, flight, and? Freeze, good. You know those are not all the same. It's fight, flight. If those don't work, it's a freeze. Okay. That stuff, that cortisol, that adrenaline, 
those hormones, how long can they stay in our bodies, in our bloodstream? If, if, some, if I'm going down the hall and someone doesn't say hi to me and it's a slight, it can be, you know, maybe 30 minutes, maybe half an hour. If a car pulls out in front of you and you slam on your brakes and you're thinking about that for a while, it can be several hours. In the 70s, researchers were looking at how many times, is, this is gender specific, how many times women experience stress during the day. Give me a number. And I'll start you off. It's double digits. <laughs> 20. 20. 70. 70. You read the research. It's around 50 to 70 times a day. Here's why this is important. If it's 70, 50 to 70 times a day that I'm experiencing this fight or flight, this freeze, and if that stuff is staying in my bloodstream for so long, some of us, some of you, never come down. Do you know what that's doing to your body? Yes. Yeah. Herbert Benson, at the time when stress and stress science is really being developed, had introduced this term called relaxation response. Anybody familiar with that? I will demonstrate it. Watch. Wait, wait, some of you may not have seen. <laughs> what am I doing? Breathing, breathing. 20 minutes a day, twice a day. I don't care what you think about. If you want to pray, if you want to do meditation, if you want to do yoga, I don't care. But it's that breathing. Here's where I think Herbert Benson really needs a Nobel Prize. You know when drug companies want to market a drug, they have to, it has to meet or exceed what our bodies own, what's that called, placebo does naturally? You know the word he used for placebo? This is amazing. Remembered wellness. Not brilliant. That when we remember from a faith perspective, when we remember who we were created to be, that in and of itself is healing, that in and of itself is holy. That is why we get to add positive psychology to what you are already doing. Does that work? I'm gonna stop just a minute and ask questions, if there's questions in the room. I can talk forever, so from what I've said so far, what have, what's got you, what are you going to go home and Google? Or I don't know if you haven't gone to worship yet, what are you going to Google during a pause? <laughs> you have your, I see your stuff there. There's a term, and to be honest, I can't remember if I read it in Seligman's word or if he said something that made me think about it, but the term that's in my head is, and put this in quotes, irrational optimism. Ah. Is that one of his terms, or did I just concoct that? I'll give that to you. Okay. I, but, but that, when I think of positive psychology, that's one of the things I think about. You can, you can use it to create wellness by choosing to be a little more optimistic than 
maybe the evidence directly supports. Right. So that's a little irrational, perhaps. Right. Let me tease that out a bit. He talks about, um, I can choose to be optimistic. I'm not even going to ask you to go that far. I mean, like that, you know. What you can do, I want you to practice being aware. And then I want you to have a choice. I think the quote is attributed to Viktor Frankl. In between stimulus and response, some of you may know this, right? What's the rest of the quote? In between stimulus and response, stimulus and response, there is space. And in that space, you get to do what? Choose. Choose. If you are on autopilot, if you have what Gottman talks about, a negative reframe, Mark comes in the door, doesn't kiss me when he first comes in. I'm in the kitchen. He goes straight upstairs, and I'm saying he always does that. That's a negative frame. I interpret that behavior through a negative way. Or the positive frame says he must have had a really hard day because typically he comes and finds me. In that space between your response, you have a choice. Someone read Philippians 4 4. I know you have Bibles or iPhones. Philippians 4 4. What does it say? Anybody? Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, talk to me about what you know about this passage. Who's, who's the author? Paul. Supposedly Paul. And what's the situation around that? Is he writing from his vacation home? Is he writing from his cruise? Where's he writing from? I am in chains. I am in chains. Yeah, supposedly. Can I be political? Supposed he was, you know, black at Starbucks. Um, he was in change. He was, he was not where he wanted to be. And he's writing what? Read that again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So how in the world do you wake up looking at the prison bars and that be your response? Prison food is really good? I don't know. (laughs) I don't think it started when he woke up that morning. Growing up, um, there was a three-by-five card taped to our bathroom mirror. Today is the best day of my life, and tomorrow is going to be even better. My dad taught Dale Carnegie, and that's where that quote came from. I remember seeing that three by five card almost all of my growing up years. It resonated with me. My older sister and my younger brother looked at that card and went, (laughs) you know, there's reasons they're the way they are. (laughs) But it started, it started a long, long, long time ago. So here's, here's the good news. If you haven't done it till now, you can do it today. Some of the research that we have that says, 
Yeah. Oh, that was the dramatic pause. <laughs> that was the space between. <laughs> I have to work on my timing. <laughs> nice. Um, what the research is showing, you, maybe a couple of months ago you, you saw something that said, what's one of the best predictors of aging, of good mental health as you age? Anybody? What do you do in your free time? Social connection, friends, exactly what you're doing now. Showing up and being present for someone else. Years ago, I mean like 50, 60 years ago, um, young women who were entering the, not Catholic, so I call it nunnery and that's not the right term, convent. convent were asked to write a short biography, you know, tell us who you are. And what they were going to be used for was um, placement, job placement. You know, do we, do we coach you for teaching? Do we coach you for to work in the kitchen? Do we, how, how do we use your skills that you're talking about? And so they collected these letters, and they had these letters for decades. And social scientists came across these letters. And they coded them for for feelings and for emotion, and they coded them for gratitude. Those that expressed gratitude, <laughs> are you ready? Lived seven years longer. It is more weight than stopping smoking. Positive psychology is not a wishful thinking I want to put on my Mary Poppins hat. It is, to quote Herbert Benson, the remembered wellness that we are created to experience and in that move towards gratitude. Of course, the writer was saying, rejoice. There's a story told of a guy, most stories are about guys, aren't they? There's a story told about a guy, and he's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And in this story, what happens? He gets robbed. He, what's the other part? You know the story. He gets robbed, beaten up, beaten up and left for And, it's my favorite part, naked. He's naked. It will become important. Maybe. So, yeah, so he's robbed, beaten, left for dead. And because of the narrative trope, a, who comes along first? Priest. A priest. And as soon as the first audience heard priest, if I say the word peanut butter and jelly, jelly they heard priest and they knew the narrative trope. It's almost like a melodrama. Have you ever been to a melodrama? Oh, when we were stationed in Southern California, we had we were season tickets holders. No, a lot to do in Port Wainimi, anyway. <laughs> and they taught you how to boo and hiss. So I'm gonna have to teach you real quickly. When the priest comes along, what do you do? He's a bad guy. Boo. So priest comes along and yes, of course he walks on the other side. Early listeners didn't want him to do anything because that narrative trope was priest and who's the second guy? 
Levite. And of course, the way the narrative trope is, he's doing the exact same thing. So Levite comes along and? Yes, because they knew, man, they knew the story. Priest, Levite, who's the third person? Israelite. That's them. That's you. Except that's not how this story is told, right? So I'm thinking, anybody uh, Life of Brian, Monty Python? Yes. Cheesemakers. <laughs> I'm thinking, let me ex- explain that. So Life of Brian is a Monty Python movie, and in the back there's um, Jesus talking, and, in, and all the way in the back, you know, what, 40, 50 people back, they can't really hear him, and, and Jesus is saying, peacemaker, and they're going, cheesemakers. Anyway, <laughs> think Monty Python, you got the skip. So I am sure someone in that crowd is going, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're actually supposed to go priest, Levite, us. <clears throat> Didn't happen that way. Where does the story transition? Samaritan comes along. Where does it change from what the priest and Levite were doing? What's the text say? He saw him and and pity. He's doing exactly what Viktor Frankl says to do. In that space between a stimulus and response, you have a choice. You have a choice. I'm imagining that that Samaritan looked at him and said, I recognize being on the out. I recognize what it's like to be beaten. I recognize what it's like to be left alone. I recognize what it's like to be vulnerable and naked. Whatever it is that he was telling himself, the behavioral response was to do what? He saw him, he had compassion, and what did he do? <coughs> you guys know, need to go he, back he and helped, read your he stories. Helped <laughs> he, helped him. he helped him. And here's our first, one of our first examples of good self-care and boundaries. Because did he say, you know, I was on my way to do that, but I'm going to cancel my plans and I'm just going to stay here and watch you. No. <laughs> As he was going on his way, finds somebody, says, first delegation, you do what you do well. I'm going to go finish doing what I was doing. I'll come back and check up on you. I love that. (laughs) I have our graduate school students read that around boundaries. It's both and. Doing what you can do well, delegating for someone else, and if you want to, come back and check up. Here's why this is important for positive psychology and understanding good mental health every single day, every single moment, you have an opportunity to choose something different than what your autopilot says you're doing. Seligman says we have what's called a set point. Some of you, if you've tried to lose weight, you soon Google metabolism. And you soon had this love-hate relationship with your metabolism number. Seligman says temperament type, we have something similar in that we have a set point. But here's the good news. You can add, you can add about 10 points to that, which means that the way that you think you are isn't an automatic. You can practice awareness have insight around that and make, do a different choice. 
questions about what I've talked so far? Yes. So for people who tend to get fixated on negative emotions, <clears throat> any advice for them on breaking out of that? And Because I find it very difficult to be grateful for stuff. I mean, you know, that's just me. That's just, I'm not, it doesn't come easy. And so I will, something negative will happen, and then I'm not concerned about all the positive things that are going on. I'm focused on how that, you know, X, Y, Z, negative things. Uh, what have you done that's worked so far? Not really anything. Okay. So the question is, I, I tend to be someone who views things and I'm looking at a risk assessment and I'm saying this, you know, I'm thinking five years out, this could go wrong and this could go wrong and this could go wrong. Uh, developmental psychologists, if you want to look at how we understand personality and personality assessments, developmental psychologists use the word big five. It's an acronym for OCEAN. And so you are somewhere on the spectrum. There's about five different ways of looking about that. Um, so one, I would suggest that you go home, Google that, and take that assessment. That's going to give you more information than here's one nugget. It could be open to experience is the first, is the first one. OCEAN is the um, acronym. I am either curious or I'm a bit reserved. Okay, I get to know that my first stance is a bit reserved. I'm not going to be critical about that. I'm not going to judge that. I'm going to know that. It's like I'm 5'4", used to be 5'3", <laughs> used to have red hair. <laughs> um, that that's, that that's, my, that's my given. Okay, now, if I wanted to think about something different, what might I do? Here's the best part about resiliency, which is what you're talking about. It's a skill that can be taught. Every single one of us can increase that, but it is not a once and done. Because of our natural default, you're going to fall back into, this is my default, right? Let me talk a little bit about temperament type, because that's a bit of what you're talking about. Early on, people thought that we had three different ways. You were an easy baby. You were an easy adolescent. You're going to be the 80-year-old in a nursing home everyone wants to be around, right? Well, if you have easy, you have what? Difficult. You have a difficult, and I'm not talking about colic. You have a difficult baby. You're the reason that your parents are in counseling as a teenager. And you're the 80-year-old that no one wants to sit around. And there are people like that. My in-laws are in a nursing home. And my mother-in-law, in a stage whisper when we're going into the dining room, points to the table with a single person and says, no one wants to be around him. And I'm thinking, Helen, <laughs> you're next. <laughs> Don't do that, right? Don't do that. Um, so, but, so easy, difficult. And the third one, and I, I don't know who comes up with these titles, slow to warm up. Our granddaughter is a slow to warm up. She's wonderful. But she'll come in and She'll kind of, you know, look at you and watch you. And once she has a sense of, okay, I'm good, you're good, you know, off to the races. That held true for many, many years. The big five is what we're teaching now. So you're somewhere on this spectrum of openness. How open are you? The other one is conscientious. We can, you can Google that. So part of it is knowing do I know this about myself? Yes. And I know these other aspects about myself, too. It could be that I use being curious 
as a way of thinking about my first thoughts. So it could be a way that you're using another skill that you have to think and help you assess that. Does that work? It's a skill. You have to practice it. You have to do it a lot. You get to do it a lot. Um, right. Good question. Any other questions? Yes. The engineer in me is wondering about the 1.08. Ah. <laughs> Frequently when I teach, I will say, um, my husband is in prayer for you <laughs> because on that big five, I'll get to it, on the big five, one of the, um, one of the ways of understanding temperament is um, very organized or careless. And I talk about, did you guys see the movie Break Up with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn? So Jennifer Aniston is playing true to type, right? She's just talking a mile a minute. And in this one conversation, Jennifer Aniston is talking, 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 talking. And Vince Vaughn turns to her and says, land the plane. We're in the movie theater, and my sweet husband turns to me, and he goes, yes, you're going to hear that again. <laughs> what? Ma? <laughs> so he feels for you when I teach, because, yeah, so five to one is, is indicative of good, healthy marriages. That's what you want to be doing. The one to point eight, you would think, if I just have the five to one, oh, I really have to be bad for, for a marriage that's not going well, right? No. It is. Like one to one would be this. It's just, it's just the occasional, it's the slight. It's the having that pause to make a choice and you make a different choice. And here's why. To go back to Barbara Friedrichsen's Why the Five to One, now what we understand about emotions and science, here's why this is important. That adrenaline, that good feeling, that spark, that's a think firework. That's a flash. That's a one and done. That goes through your body lasts minutes, maybe at the most. That negative is a slow burn. So I actually do need to do more of the positive for my body to have that sense of, of erasing or making, making that less than. That's why the number is important. Thank you. Yes? So is what you're saying about the one to point out? One positive to a little bit of negativity. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like one positive to five negatives. It's like one positive to, I mean, it's, you know, just right below that one. That's, yeah, that's how powerful that negativity is in our relationships, in our bodies. What did you hear me say today? What have you heard? Someone else, what did you hear? Be grateful. Yeah. What else did you hear? It's a skill we develop. Yes, you're trainable. <laughs> yes. Someone else, what did you hear? I'm sometimes uh, amazed that uh, our, our built-in 
system is a little ill-suited for modern life in that we do have built into us these these reflexes that can be very counterproductive in the way we live now. Yeah. Yes. And, and the awareness of that is, is is worth is worth hearing. We're innately negative, and I think culturally that negativity gets exasperated by our desire to be approved and involved social, especially our, our children. But I don't think we're out of that either with, with Facebook. I mean, this generation, this room is all over Facebook, and um, I think that's a whole thing. Another thing you're probably seeing with your grad students. Is, culturally where that's playing into the positivity because we're constantly being brought down, constantly being judged, and we're judging others. It's just a cycle. It just sucks. And um, We just got back from a couple days away from all that stuff. When we came back, we were like, God, it's amazing how much the environment just just brings you down. When we were by ourselves, it was awesome. <laughs> you know, poor kids will do that to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you have good kids. But what you're talking about is how critical these Sabbath moments, that resting, that remembering. Yeah. Two more. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. Um, how is that trainability affected by mental illness? Good question. Answer to a very big question, but is there anything you have seen that helps, especially with depression? Yeah, it's both and. I'm always assessing for how <coughs> is the anxiety feeding into this? Is it is is the circumstances heightening the anxiety? It's it's both and. And any any psychologist, any therapist is going to have that assessment to say all of these things are on the table which is actually going to help some of these others as well. <coughs> it's both and. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, mine's more of a question, too. Um, so when he was talking about negativity, I teach at a university, and, you know, they get to do course evals at the end of the semester. So I tend to focus on, like, the one negative comment and not the 20 positive ones. Mm -hmm. And it's, so are you saying, like, like just make a make an intentional decision to take that negative comment, but it's like sticks in my head. It does. And it's, and it's you know, they get to hide behind their computers and they not, do. You know, do it anonymously. It's both and. You get to say what I say, because I get them, as when I read them, I get them as well, but it's, there's something that prompted that student to write that. Is there part of that that can be truth for me? Okay, I can take that. Right. I always ask them to, to be constructive. Well, I don't think they know what that means, but um, I think it's both and. I think it's both and. It's recognizing, I don't think people make stuff up to be mean, and I think they're certainly, for the most part, and they're certainly responding to something that was going on with them. Um, so I'm going to, if, if, it's, if it's very pointed, I'm going to have a conversation to ask. where they have to come in and 
do like demonstrate skills. And so I've started doing some research on graduate students and anxiety and how to try to reduce that. Yeah. But I, the numbers, I mean, I would say 95% of the students in my class have. To your point, we have a cultural awareness of that. I see Terry Casey standing, which means um, I'm out of time. So let me, if I can, close this in prayer. Holy One, we are in your presence because you call us. You call us to be in your presence. And you call us by name. You call us mother and father and sister and brother. And sometimes you call us friend. Holy One, help us to be the one that you call friend. Holy One, we know that we do not leave your presence unchanged. So change us. Live in us in ways that speak of compassion. Live in us in ways that speak of integrity. Live in us in ways that speak of forgiveness. Holy One, we are in your presence, grateful to be in your presence. And all God's people say, Amen. All right. Thank you, Joy. You are welcome. A couple of parting comments here. Um, 